Friday, October 29th, 2021. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco and we're on Ramatouche Ohlone land. For more information, please go to ramatouche.org. That is R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.org. Please donate um, at that site if you are able. We have a show for you today. Um, haven't been here in a few weeks, so it feels good to be back. And uh, lots been going on as per usual. Start off with some music as we often do. Almost always on the show. The first song we heard was by a band called Hippocampus, a song called Violet, then Tank Top by Caroline Smith, and then Beautiful Life by Michael Kiwanuka. And uh, yeah, I'll get to some articles because there's a lot to get to. Perhaps you're listening for the first time. And so, hi. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. Going to see what that uh, noise was. Okay. So, also want to share, we have a website that provides show notes, so if there's any articles we go over, or if you hear a song that you like during the show, um, if you go to weeklyrev.org, um, we have a site that's up that will link to a lot of the content on the show today, and previous shows, which we've been doing for quite a while now, so please do check that out at any time. At times. I guess I should provide a trigger warning in that uh, we'll be talking about the news, and it's full of a lot of fucking fascists and uh, horrible people in positions of power who do a lot of terrible things. However, the positive spin on this is that there are a lot of folks doing work to combat that and have been for a very long time. So it's important to get plugged in where you can where you can, and also everyone has the ability to show up in a variety of ways. And that's what we also will share here. So as well as just trying to push back against a lot of dis- disinformation, uh, which is part of the reason that we're here right now, is to provide, um, there's teach-ins that are coming up, as well as other events that folks can participate in and other ways that folks can uh, connect. Um, it's super important to be able to do that as we are moving forward in this world. Sometimes it doesn't feel like forward, does it? But we'll do our best. 
also wanted to um, share a book I um, am just about finishing by Jay Hoberman called Make My Day, and it's about uh, movie culture in the age of Reagan, and it's pretty, <laughs> wow, it made me super angry in the, just learning about pop culture in the 80s, and, you know, a decade I grew up in, and how the politics was tied in with just so much uh, bullying and lies and disregard for humans and the planet Earth. And a lot of the movies that came out around that time really just reinforced those those messages. And it kind of just fed into itself because then Reagan would watch some of the old movies he was in where he played someone in a war and then he would start wars and or promote wars. And it was so much. And then as the elections would come on, they really took that bullying into into what was happening and trying to make opponents seem quote-unquote weak and their definition of weak was someone who maybe was not quote-unquote tough on crime although uh, criminalizing uh, poor people seems to make things worse for everyone is actually pretty fucking awful so uh, it's just awful and then also with Reagan with having experience being in front of the camera was good in the regard that he could make people who weren't thinking so much think that things were okay and he could just he went, didn't have a lot of substance, but the way he would tell things or could tell lies, enough people believed him where he was able to convince a lot of folks out there that he was uh, the right person for the job. And then he also had like connections with the far right and with uh, the religious right and just a lot of really horrific things. A lot of us know this. I'm perhaps preaching to the choir. However, I really recommend this book in terms of it's also just uh, it shows how things are also kind of how they are now. And one uh, interesting point, and I love movies, so it was also just interesting to, to see that, uh, was how in, in Ghostbusters, it was this kind of idea of free market, which is weird because Harold Ramis is one of the co-writers, and he's definitely, certainly a leftist, and his daughter wrote a really good book about him, and he had pretty good politics. However, the the way the film Ghostbusters kind of came out was this: there, was, there were scientists in there and EPA folks who were kind of disregarded uh, <laughs> as characters in that. So, and then also this idea of the other, bullying the other. In this case, it would be aliens, which I know it's complicated. Um, but uh, certainly, uh, oh, and also apparently it was filmed, uh, lar largely filmed in LA, um, in Skid Row area. And so there was also just a lot of feelings about how the people in the, in the area were treated when they came in for filming. So that was just one small, then there's Indiana Jones with all of its racist tropes and sexist trips as well. So these were just a few things. And then these are like big movies that a lot of us grew up on and watched over and over and over again. And like all these messages get sunk into our, our brains. Uh, and also Jaws was one they talked about too. And that came out in like the late 70s, but it was also very much this idea of really building fear in, in people and uh, not communities working together. Okay. So that's a rant I wasn't expecting to share, but I highly recommend the book, and uh, it's far better than what I just uh, said about it. Really great. All right, I'm going to just start on with some, I've <laughs> been out of practice for a bit, haven't been here for a few weeks, so please uh, pardon me with that. I'm going to start off with a few articles that hopefully won't depress us. Oh, that one's too depressing. I can't start with that. Uh, I guess that's what uh, the show's about, though, right? Let's see, what's this one? Um, a California law gave the people power to cut pollution. Why isn't it working? That's from Grist. 
I don't really quite feel up for reading that one right now either. And part of the reason I'm, I'll be stopping the show uh, come December is uh, my mental health. I think it's really important to share what's going on and also, oof, it's taking a toll. It's also another article, and I think I'll definitely at least post all these, even if I don't get to read all of them. And I'll probably end up just sharing some audio from other folks because it's a lot to get through. Uh, disability rights or human rights, uh, why businesses can still get away with paying pennies to employees with disabilities. And this is from Vox. An 80-year-old law makes it legal to pay people with disabilities less than minimum wage. Will Congress finally act to change that? This is from 2020, March of 2020, written by Sarah Luderman. We'll share a link to that. And uh, I think this was shared because uh, Salvation Army, or no, no, uh, Goodwill was, was trending and folks wanted to um, remind people that Goodwill does not pay its uh, disabled employees what they should be paid. Another article here, this is about um, folks who have been protesting the pipeline. Which pipeline, you ask? Because there's unfortunately too many of these stupid-ass pipelines that leak and cause harm. Wow, I am really, you know, I came in in a, in a decent mood, and it's just, it's sharing all this is, I mean, it's important to share it, and also it's just, it's so fucking frustrating because, I mean, frustrating just isn't numerous people just losing their lives and having their lives harmed and having the earth harmed just due to greed and how things have not fucking changed at all. I mean, that's pretty much uh, just where, where we're at. But I do want to share these pieces of info for folks. And I'm going to start off, I think, by someone posted a link very recently that I want to share, and it's of Carol Fife speaking. So I wanted to share this. Um, it's important to... Hello, District 3 and the world, all of Oakland, and for all of the party members who came from all over the country to be here for this unveiling today, I say I love you, I thank you, the wind, the rain, I think it's the ancestors coming today to acknowledge and honor the spirit of Dr. Huey P. Newton right here in Oakland, California. That's what I think it is. So really quick, I'm going to read, this is, this is not Dr. Huey, but I think it's par for the course. It's uh, the Honorable Marcus Garvey, I think it speaks to the moment right now. Look for me in the whirlwind or the storm. Look for me all around you, for with God's grace I shall come and bring with me countless millions of black slaves who died in America and the West Indies and the millions in Africa to aid you in the fight for liberty, freedom, and death. Why is that important today? It is because there are people like Garvey, like Minister Huey, like the party, people who laid down their lives for us to have freedom and liberty that we are struggling for today. I couldn't stand here in the legacy of Minister Huey and not talk about the contradictions that we are still experiencing in Oakland and throughout the California and the world because of the boot that white supremacist capitalism still has on our necks in 2021. There are so many contradictions today that I can't even begin to talk about, that we still have to struggle against, that we still are fighting for. When we talk about the party, we have to remember Cointel Pro and the FBI investigation to dismantle the party and to stop the, the, the rise of a black messiah. 
We in, don't act like in 2021 they are not here in Oakland right now, working against me and people who work with me to stop the rise of a black messiah and what black power is in this country. It is happening today. I cannot stand here on Minister Huey's day and not talk about the contradictions. We are still experiencing contradictions. And until we are, be, are able to tell the truth about the contradictions in our midst, we will not get the power that they were struggling for. So forgive me if this is throwing a wet blanket on a wet day. But I gotta tell the truth. They told the truth. They fought and they died to tell the truth. So please, I'm fighting 55 years later to make a reality what we have not experienced yet. And I'm hoping that today in the honoring of this man who was a genius, a brilliant genius who gave us so much that we are able to not even, not just celebrate his legacy, but live into his legacy, live into his purpose, live into his sacrifice and make it a reality for the people who are living in the rain on the street today. All these homeless people in this district on the street today. Well, we got money from wars but can't feed the poor. Uh, you know what? I'm done. I told Lori I would only speak for one minute. I apologize, but I am in deep honor to stand with with you, my sister. For what you did today. It is just a symbol, a symbol that we need but that we have to build on. It shouldn't have taken 55 years. It shouldn't have taken that, but we are here. And we are not only going to celebrate the legacy of the Black Panther Party, we're going to make the 10 point platform and program a reality. That is what we will do. And I need all of y'all to help me make that happen. All right, so that was Carol Fife, And uh, we'll share a link to this video on our website. Uh, next up, I want to share some more videos as well, or audio from videos, because, uh, yeah, it's radio. So next up from It's Going Down, um, as mentioned earlier, there was the folks protesting against the pipeline. There's an article here. Um, Chief Zatzel arrested following growing blockades. Machinery shut down on Wet'suwet'en territory, and this came out on October 28th. 2021. And there's a few videos included in this, so it might feel like a little bit um, pieced together, but I'm just playing them from the website and hopefully folks will can get a sense of what's going on. Hey everybody, it's Slato. We're here at Coyote Camp no, on Wet'suwet'en territory at Cassia. And we just want to give a little update. Sahail and Colin Sutherland have been arrested along with one other person. Um, they are still on the territory. Um, more RCMP enforcements came onto the territory. The road was blocked. Um, there's now a blockage on the main road. Um, they can't get off of the territory and nobody can get in. So we need everybody to get your boots on the ground. Please come to camp. We need support for Luxamasu. Um, support the Wet'suwet'en in this struggle that we've been on for 10 years now. Um, we need everybody to just Shut shit down wherever you are, whatever you can do. If you can't get here, you need to start making a noise, start making a fuss, get get things going wherever you are. Oh, it's on the site. All right, and the website uh, that was shared in the link at the end, I want to share that. One moment here. I'm just going to 
the end again. I can read it out loud. It's feeling a little bit rocky coming back here. Um, okay, but that I practice. It's uh, Yinta Access, and that's Y I N T A H A C C E S S dot com. So that's the first video, and then we'll get to the second one here. Next up, we have a tweet with some photos uh, after coastal gas link pipeline workers used heavy machines to block uh, Wet'suwet'en chiefs from their own land. Uh, the chief uh, disabled the equipment, turning G CGLs blockade against them. And then they've decommissioned 10 pieces of heavy equipment, which is pretty cool. Next up, another video here. It has subtitles. Oh, I am so slow on the take today. I'm really out of practice here. So I'll be reading the, the script that's on the video. Pipeline workers have used heavy machinery to block Wet'suwet'en chiefs from their land. Oh. And... Chief Tsatso decommissioned these machines. This is video footage. Oh, I'm just going to take the batteries out there and um, sec secure these pieces of equipment because um, none of the executives of CGL will come to the table if uh, we don't have a few assets in order to bring them onto the table. What do you suspect these equipment are worth? About $750,000? Oh, thank you. Uh, I really feel safe now. So I think um, hopefully this is going to do it there to bring them onto the table. We'll just keep working until we get everything that we need done done. So in a couple hours, we should have some bargaining chips. So uh, what we're going to do later is uh, we're going to look for some more assets. We'll start moving throughout uh, the pipeline on our territory and uh, we'll make sure we secure as many assets as we can. You know, we're dealing with a snake with no head, meaning there that um, CGL, LNG Canada, and Enbridge, um, you know, none of them have uh, top executives come and talk to us and negotiate with us. They always send, uh, you know, little peons, and uh, it's disgraceful. Our goal is to have CGL remove all of the pipe we need to not on doesn't have to be them it could be um, us and them put up a bond in order for us to reclaim all of the Lexamsu territory on both ends that they've uh, uh, did so much degradation to and uh, this is the that's the end goal is to make sure justice is served Uh, there's photographs. Until recently, there had never been a road into this part of the Lamassu new land. Uh, now a road is carved toward the coast up through snow-capped mountains. Pipe is strung out next to pristine waters. A massive man camp has also been installed and occupied. Workers here will likely have to be 
run out because coastal gassing security has barricaded the road. You guys are not going to be able to get in or out. This is the start of the right of way here. We've been given authority to escort you up as far as the right of way, but not on the right of way. Can you get back on the radio? Yeah, and, and get them to move the piece of equipment for us so we could get down to her territory. Do the best I can, but there's yep. no promises. I don't think point would be a breach of the injunction. The Wet'suwet'en are looking after their own territory. The injunction is completely invalid. So this is the uh, where CGL at 25 kilometer has blocked us from entering onto our own territory. As a Wet'suwet'en, we're not recognizing that injunction because uh, we're not a part of BC, we're not a part of Canada. So that injunction is completely invalid on Wet'suwet'en territory. Yep. And they won't come up here to talk with anybody. They're, they haven't been given authority. That's okay. We're not going anywhere. We'll stay here for day, week, month, whatever it takes. If they don't move for us, we're not going anywhere. It just means all their work will stop from here on in because they won't be able to get workers in or out. video. I'll start with some of the captions here. Um, I don't know, see people have have answered the call to stand alongside wet sweatin water protectors. You are on Chief Wass's territory. Come as invaders. Leave. <laughs> the Haudenosaunee people are here in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en, the Mohawk, and Onondaga. This is a land of Chief Wass! You come as invaders! 
Territory can be heard as our Odenau, Ausuni relatives send the RCMP retreating from their daily harassment patrol at Coyote Camp. So, yes, lots of info in this article that we will share on our page at weeklyrev.org. And yes, all right, going to take a bit of a music break. We'll be back with some more news and uh, items. Yeah, just, uh, you know, it was funny. I Not funny, but this morning I was like, oh, I'm just going to like take it easy today. I'm going to go and do the show. And it's really difficult not to feel just so much rage as to what's going on and has been going on in not just, of course, the U.S. history, but in Canada and around the world and how it's still... Um, continues to happen. Whew. All right. Be uh, back in a bit. Just a little more room. Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. Spread it around, do. 
blanket soft and warm? Does the roof above you keep out the storm? Can you save someone else from being cold? Spread it around. Spread it around, dude. Spread it around, Fall down 
All right, some more uplifted music for you. That was Shame, Shame, Shame by Lake Street Dive. Before that, we heard 817 Oakland Avenue by Charlie Parr. Coming up, going to play a teach-in. But first, I want to share about an upcoming event that folks can check out on Monday, November 1st. Ah, this Monday, November 1st at 5 p.m. Pacific time. The Copwatch Community Accountability class is honored and lucky to be joined by special guest speaker Kat Brooks speaking on eradicating state terror. And there is a link here. Uh, it's a Zoom. Oh, great. It's on Zoom. So therefore, folks can check it out no matter where you are, as long as you've got internet access. And yeah, I'll read a little bit about this. Kat Brooks is an artivist, community leader, mother, and passionate public speaker. She is the co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project, whose mission is to eradicate state violence in communities of color, and uh, executive director of the Justice Teams Network, a statewide coalition of organizations working to end state violence. And yeah, so this will be happening on Monday, November 1st, from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. And there is... a. Uh, Zoom info as well. I will share. I'll share this link on our page, and folks can check it out. So yeah, no matter where you are, uh, this will be um, very informative. All right. So as I was going to mention before, there is a. I sometimes leave it to other folks to do the the talking on this show. Uh, see myself maybe more as a curator here. So this is uh, Building Capacity for Mutual Aid Groups, Workshop 1, No Masters, No Flakes. And this was on YouTube and was put on by the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And they also have a video that has live captions. So if you need that, there's also an ASL interpreter as well um, in the video. So I'm going to share the audio part here, and I'll post a link to the video on our website. And I'll check in uh, as uh, since we'll be ending the show around two. So please do uh, check it out. And again, if you go to our page, weeklyrev.org, by the end of the day, I should have the, a link to the video up if you'd like to share it with folks. All right, stay tuned. Hi, everyone. I'm Hope Dechter. I'm the creative director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women. I'm so happy to welcome everyone to tonight's workshop, Building Capacity for Mutual Aid Groups, No Masters, No Flakes. This workshop is the first in a series of four presented by Dean Spade and co-sponsored by BCRW, Fireweed Collective, and Survived and Punished New York, all addressing various issues and topics related to building capacity for mutual aid groups. More information about all four workshops are available on the event page linked below this video, and we hope that folks will join us for the additional sessions. I'll keep my remarks brief, but I want to offer a few notes on accessibility mm -hmm. and gratitude. First, a land acknowledgement. Tonight's event is taking place online, but we are all physically located someplace, and we recognize that all land is Indigenous land. Barnard College is located on the traditional ancestral territories of Lenape people. In terms of accessibility, you can find a link to access live transcription for this event directly under the video on the BCRW event page or in the YouTube video description. Thank you to Lydia Perez from Total Caption for providing the live transcription. Thank you also to our amazing ASL interpreters for tonight's event, Trisha Vasquez and MJ Jones. We're so grateful to you to provide, for providing this essential service. 
We are planning for tonight's workshop to take place for 90 minutes, ending around 8.30 Eastern time. If you have a question for Dean, you can type it into the YouTube chat. We'll be collecting any questions um, from throughout the event there um, to send to Dean for the Q&A that will take place towards the end of the workshop. I also want to thank my coworkers at BCRW for making programs like tonight possible, including Elizabeth Caselli, Pam Phillips, Avi Hemming, and especially Sophie Kreitzberg, who's coordinating so much of the work that goes into these events behind the scenes, including managing the social media and communications during the event. And to BCRW social uh, student research assistant, Nilo Cooper, who is working with Sophie behind the scenes tonight. Big thanks also to Fireweed Collective and Survived and Punished New York for co-sponsoring this workshop series. We're excited to be partnering with you and encourage everyone to check out their work via the links in the event description. I'm always so happy to introduce Dean Spade, who has been such an amazing longtime collaborative partner for me and has worked with BCRW to create videos and programming on mutual aid, prison abolition, queer liberation, disability justice, and transformative justice. Dean is the author of Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next, as well as Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of the Law. Dean teaches at Seattle University School of Law and has been working in social movements and prisons, borders, poverty, and war for over two decades. I'm so glad to be welcoming Dean to begin this workshop. Thanks so much to Hope and Sophie and the interpreters and everyone who's making this possible. I'm really excited about this experiment. Um, basically, I wanted to take a lot of the workshop content that I just tend to do with mutual aid groups, like one group at a time, and try to make it available to a lot of people to see if people would want to bring it back to their groups, use the same content to run their own little workshops, um, or otherwise somehow find any of it helpful. I feel like I want to say, you know, this is just stuff I learned by trying things. It may or may not be useful to you. I hope you'll take what you like and leave the rest. Um, and uh, maybe we'll all, you know, learn some things, including me, about what's useful or not useful in this. Um, I'm calling in from Duwamish land, Seattle, Washington, and really grateful to be here. So grateful for the ongoing collaborations with the Barnard Center for Research on Women, the Fireweed Collective, and Survived and Punished New York. Um, Hope, would you please share my slides? Great. Um, this slide is just a, a, a image that I found on the internet of a <laughs> stencil that says solidarity, not charity. And I really like it, so I often throw it in. Um, Okay, I wanna share a few access notes. Um, so I am using these slides, um, but, uh, and I'm also gonna be using interactive polls and it's fine to not participate in them. If you just wanna listen to this um, or just watch the interpreters, like whatever works for you, um, I will read what is on my slides out loud. So if it doesn't work for you to look at the screen, you could be um, hearing that. Um, or if it doesn't look for you, work for you to look at the slides, you could be seeing what the interpreters are interpreting from what I'm saying. Um, and I will read selections from the polls. I won't read everything from the polls out loud because there's a lot of us. Um, 
there'll be a couple times when I encourage people to write things in the YouTube chat. Um, sometimes I'll read things there for emphasis, but I can't probably read everything people write in the YouTube chat. Um, I really encourage people to take breaks whenever you need to. This is being recorded, so you can come back to it later if it feels like that's useful. And this slideshow will be available later um, for anyone who wants to use it or um, look at it again. Um, what I want to try to do in this time, although it's possible we won't make it through all of it, in which case I'll bring some of the content into the next workshop, um, but what I'm hoping to do is give some basic background assumptions that I bring to this work um, to talk a little bit about why I think it's so important for us to make our mutual aid groups horizontal, like to make them flat, to have there be no boss, no executive director. Um, talk about a few common problems that a lot of groups run into and this question of what we want to cultivate instead. Talk a little bit about how all groups have a group culture or an organizational culture. Talk about capacity. This is like a really big thing people wrote in the registration questions that's facing your groups, like having too much work, feeling burned out, feeling like people are flaky so the work doesn't get done. I want to talk a little bit about perfectionism and procrastination, and then we'll have a Q&A period. Um, and I've tried to make this as interactive as possible, given that it's being watched on YouTube. We're not actually in a webinar format together, um, using polls to try to, um, and the chat to try to solicit your experiences. So we will be uh, seeing how that goes. And I hope that we'll get to hear a lot from people about what they're learning and what problems they're running up against. So I want to shift to those polls. So Hope and Sophie, if you could move us to, to the polls and we'll do the first one. I'm just using these as an opportunity to talk about what, who was here. So um, this is gonna be like a word cloud. If you could go to menti.com and use the code that's at the top of this screen, which is 2054. Five seven zero zero, and once again, menti.com is spelled M-E-N-T-I.com, um, and answer this question, and hopefully the results will appear before us, and we'll get to see some of what people who are attending this workshop do in their mutual aid groups. And I know that some people who registered are just thinking about starting a group or are not in a group yet, that's okay. If you have an idea of what you might be hoping to offer, tell us. Oh my God, this is so cool. People are providing a lot of food, clothing, shelter, menstrual products, money, diapers, emotional support, Eviction defense. Wish I could see it even bigger. Oh, I can. I can. Cool. Information, financial assistance, education, cleaning supplies, herbal medicine, housing, hygiene, trash pickup. Logistics, 
fresh produce, connection, clothes, cash. Disaster relief. This is so rad. Okay, I mean, there's so much that I can't even see at all, but maybe we can, after the workshop in our follow-up email, give you all like a high quality picture of this so that we can see the little tiny words. This is rad. There are a lot of us here, obviously. Cool. We're getting a little sense of what we're up to. A lot of herbal medicine. That's rad that there's a lot of that, that that's, those words are big in this. That makes me really happy. Yeah. Cool. Rent assistance, tampons, hot meals, survival supplies, discussion space, harm reduction. Books. I bet there's some people here who send books to prisoners. All right, rad. Okay, let's go to the next question. Okay, if you're still filling in that one. Is anyone in your group being paid to do the work? Let's just see how we divide up. Um, so feel free to throw your answer in. Um, seeing which kind of group, how many groups here have some kind of staffing or stipended position? How many groups? have everyone's volunteer. And most groups so far don't have any paid people. Some do. There is a whole world of special dynamics that can happen when some people are paid. Maybe that'll come up in the Q&A if people are having particular questions about that. Um, but I'm kind of assuming in the workshop that a lot of groups have a lot of unpaid people or all unpaid people. Cool. Still bumping up. It's fun to watch the results come in. All right, let's go to the next one, Sophie. How long has your group existed? More than five years, more than two years, more than one year, more than six months, more than one month. I'm trying to get a sense of how old and young these groups are. I'm guessing a lot of people here might have started their group in the period when COVID started and or the uprising in 2020. So I think we'll have a lot of groups that are between one and two years. That's what I'm seeing. We got some people who've been in their groups for a long time though here for more than five years. So it'd be useful to get some of their wisdom, things they've tried. Well, we've got some people who are trying to start up now. That's great because maybe some of this information helps you start on the right foot. All right, let's try the next slide, Sophie. Okay, this, I'm sorry if this is 
confusing the way I put it, but I'm just trying to understand how many, I know a lot of groups that just provide stuff to people online, mostly cash. And then I know groups that provide something to people in person, like diapers, or they're dropping out groceries or books or so. Um, let us know how, if more than half of your work is just providing things online, or if more than half of your work is providing something more physical. Although also the online could be emotional support or it could be breaking isolation. We're just trying to get a sense of how much of the, how many of us here are doing something that's like physical site, like at a encampment of unhoused people or dropping something off somewhere or doing something at a school or a prison versus um, organizing online. And this, I thought this was also important because a lot of the groups I work with that are organizing entirely online, people might be kind of all in lots of regions whereas the groups that are doing something in person more likely have some kind of geographical concentration. So that just changes what, what the organizing obstacles are for each of those. Okay, so more significantly more groups here are doing something in person, but a good number are doing the work entirely online. I'm just gonna take a moment to let the interpreter switch. Thanks, great. All right, let's bring the next slide. What's the biggest problem facing your group? I heard a lot of answers to this in the registration questions, but I thought it would be interesting if we also made a word cloud about it. I think you can answer, I think you can give up to three answers into the word cloud. Burnout, oh. sustainability, capacity, Funding, co-opting, the health department, decision-making, recruitment, lack of volunteers. It's a charity. <laughs> Consensus-making, state violence, inclement weather, turnover, engagement, growth. Conflict is getting big in this. Accountability. Procrastination, lack of volunteers, white supremacy, disorganization, true mutuality, capitalism, leadership. Time, money, communication. As we see these come up, I just wanna say, we didn't set up the systems we're living in. It's really hard to do this work. It's really beautiful to do it. We're doing it imperfectly because it needs to get done. I just wanna, if, this, if it makes you anxious or concerned to see these problems in this cloud, yeah, it's hard, but it's like we are going to just keep doing it and figuring it out and trying stuff and we're not alone. We're so many of us trying this stuff and sharing our best ideas and our attempts. I think that's all of my first intro questions. Sophie, am I right about that? Is that all my first intro questions that I had as polls? 
Yeah, cool. Okay, great. All right. Um, I love seeing those polls and we'll make, yeah, we'll put those in that follow-up email so you'll be able to see them. Hope, will you bring back up the slides and go to the, um, and yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so I wanna share a few of my background assumptions, which I hope lets you know kind of where I stand on a few things. Um, happy to answer questions about these at the end. Um, I just think they kind of sometimes are clarifying for people about where I'm coming from. Um, and if you don't share them, that's fine. But just so you know why I'm talking about things I'm talking about. One is that I believe that social change comes from organizing by millions of people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, not from charismatic leaders, corporate media coverage, elected officials, courts or legislatures. Those things I think all like catch up later sometimes, but or like parrot some of it or co-opt some of it. But um, the only way we're gonna win or even that some of us will survive is through um, people power. Like our opponents have all the money, all the guns. They've set up enormous systems to relentlessly extract from people and the planet. And the only thing we have going for us is that like their game is a losing game for most people on earth. And so I strongly believe that we're not going to find any answers through elite solutions. We need tons and tons and tons of people organized to create enormous pressure and replace the extractive systems. Like that's like the theory of change that underlies everything we're going to talk about today. I also believe that local networked autonomous projects grounded in local knowledges are better at responding to crisis and disaster and building methods of collective self-determination than big centralized organizations. So in a, an authoritarian society like ours, we're told that if we want things to go, quote unquote, to scale, they should be big organizations that are have a central leadership that delivers instruction from some central place that's like how the government works and how corporations work and big nonprofits. And actually, in my opinion, those things are very non-responsive to the local conditions where crisis and disaster happen. And I think the better, more responsive to scale model is a proliferation of projects that share best practices and wisdom that have solidarity and back each other up, but that can like learn on the ground what is needed right where they are, like in their cultural community, in their language, in, in their region, in, in their ecology. So that is part of what I believe about mutual aid is that we make a million projects or millions of projects rather than trying to come up with like one like state solution. I believe that starting with the survival of the most stigmatized and excluded people is the most pragmatic approach. That needs saying because we live in a context in which like most like nonprofit and charity advocacy and services is about like figuring out who the deserving people are and giving them something or cutting them a break from a brutal system. Like who doesn't have a felony conviction or who, you know, 
is sober or um, all of those pieces. And that I think that social justice never trickles down. So if you meet the needs of people who are less stigmatized and excluded, you will not have met the needs of people who are in a worse and more complex position. You'll actually often have worsened the stigma around them. So a lot of what mutual aid groups have always done is support the people who are left out of everything else. Um, and that to me is highly pragmatic. If we make change, if we create a world that works for the most stigmatized people, it'll work for everyone else too. But the reverse is not true. So those are my assumptions. I look forward to any questions about them. They're, that's a real rough version of them, but that's like the ground on which other things I'm saying stands. So um, these workshops are about building mutual aid groups that can make decisions together that include everybody, that can uh, prevent and weather conflict, that can um, sustain work and sustain engagement, that can bring lots of new people into the work um, and so that it's well resourced by people power and that can be a bridge for people towards deeper and bolder movement engagement. I strongly believe that horizontal group structures, meaning group structures where there's no boss or executive director um, or like main decider are the way to get there for a number of reasons. And I want to share those um, in case that's new for people. One big reason is that hierarchies invite abuse and reproduce systems like racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, et cetera. I mean, we see it all the time. It's like when you set something up as a hierarchy, like oftentimes it's men or white people bossing people around or old people bossing young people around or whatever. Um, and that bossing around can include worse forms of exploitation and abuse also. I think that is inherent to hierarchy. So we, we've seen forever in social justice movements, people set up hierarchical groups and then the same stuff plays out that they were trying to fight. I think that's worsened. It's not as if it can't happen in horizontal groups. We still have the dynamics. Um, we still have that unlearning to do, but I think that hierarchy invites it. I think people generate more wisdom when they think of solutions and plans together than when someone is anointed to tell them what to do. Like there's just more wisdom when more people get a full say and can say, well, that doesn't work for people with this situation that maybe no one else is thinking of, or that won't work for my community for these reasons. Then we start to get a better idea. When we have a hierarchy, often people on top with privilege, saying how it's gonna be and not, not capable of considering all of that other wisdom. When people have a say in work, it gets implemented more, especially when almost everybody or everybody is doing this work for free. People just won't do it if, it, if they're being forced to. Like if I'm in a group that I'm just in because I care about it and there's a boss in the group and they say, this is how we're gonna do the work and I don't think that's good for my community or for the work, I'll just leave or I won't do it. Um, and that's even true at paid jobs. Lots of us, you know, intentionally drag our feet in or slow down work because we 
think it's messed up how it's being organized. But when people actually have a say in how work happens, um, they stay in it in a different way and implement it. And ultimately, we want more people to have more skills to take responsibility together for what's happening in our world. We need people activated. The current culture wants us all very passive. It wants us to consume and be lost in entertainment and um, passively hope that the next election or something someone else does, a nonprofit does, will solve our problems. And the whole point of the kind of movements I'm in is we need maximum participation. We need people to take responsibility for one another and for our lives. And so we want people to have more skills to steward stuff together instead of being like the bosses or the top dogs or the elites will, will handle this or should handle this and I'm kind of disempowered. Also, we want all of our groups, all of our little mutual aid projects and our medium-sized mutual aid projects, we want them all to be people building machines. We want someone to show up because they need something or because they're passionate about helping people who need this thing and out of that gain a bunch of new skills and new solidarities like they come in because they care about this and they find out they also care about this and they're going to have all these other people's backs and they learn how to facilitate meetings and they learn how to plan a direct action and they learn how to do hygiene in particular settings or they learn how to tie knots in a certain way we want people to get skilled up and deepen their political understandings and their abilities to connect with others and build belonging in communities. We want, we need this to build us up, especially skill us up with the skills that have been denied by living in an authoritarian, white supremacist, sexist, et cetera, society. This is my attempt at making a graphic. Um, I'm into rainbows. Um, what this graphic is supposed to be about if you imagine that the white field, so this, this graphic looks like a rainbow target with each layer moving um, to another color and the outside is white. And then and in that, I imagine like in that zone where people have not yet heard of our group, they're not connected to our group yet, but maybe some of them like um, heard about or are upset about what's happening with unhoused people in our city or have some, you know, someone they care about is in prison or they think something might be wrong with the police. They've got some, they're, they're potentially recruitable. <laughs> they're to some degree, they've either got some skin in the game or they've got some vague interest or they follow something that relates. And then if you imagine, I've got this arrow going to the center of the target. So when they enter the first outer circle, the red circle, they maybe have actually come in contact with our group in some way. They saw us on Instagram or they saw our tent, um, you know, outside the jail or they, um, someone mentioned it to them um, when they went through housing court or whatever. And then you get to the maybe at the, the level of the orange circle, the next circle in people who, uh, uh, you know, actually like came to one of our um, larger events or read something we wrote or signed a petition we wrote, um, you know, demanding that the city, you know, not build this jail or whatever it is. Um, and then the yellow circle, maybe people who've come to our meetings, like they've come to one or two meetings or they've reached out to us, they've engaged with us, they, um, they, they took home a hygiene kit and put them together for people um, to be brought to people in, um, living in the encampment. They've done something with us. And maybe the green circle of people who are like 
actually like in our group and are like regularly come and participate in decision making and are pretty reliable and the blue circle are people who are like really serious this is the main thing they're doing in their life besides whatever they have to do to survive and they are you know helping steward it and helping bring new people into the group and the purple circle would be people who have taken on kind of the most like sense of um of that stewarding and are like really focused on bringing more and more and more people so this image to me is about like what we're trying to do in our mutual aid groups we're trying to bring people deeper into our groups and deeper into social movement and mobilization we're trying to be like how do we get people from the red to the orange how to get them from the orange to the yellow you know and how do we all become people building um engines how do we generate leadership in others and ownership of this project in others horizontal organizations i think like are this type of you know machine or this maybe that's not maybe i should be using a more organic metaphor but you know are this type of operation this type of function i don't know if this graphic is useful for people but i enjoyed making it so there's some common problems in social justice groups that i just want to name that may be familiar to you and soon we'll get back to some of the more skillsy things in this in this workshop it's just the kind of background stuff um one really big common problem in social justice groups and groups with unpaid people and groups with staff and nonprofits, all kinds, is a lot of groups that just really lack transparency. There's a lot of secrecy, there's hierarchy, there's lack of clarity. We don't know how this decision was made. We don't know, nobody knows where the money's going. We don't know why, who, how, how much that person gets paid. Uh, you know, there's some, there's a sense, I think, especially in nonprofits, there's like something unsavory sometimes it feels like about why did they hire that person? Is this like that person's brother or something? Like what, what's going on here? Why, um, why, why can't we find out what the pay differences are between women of color and white men in this group? Or um, why won't this group sign on to um, the community call for a solidarity budget or to defund the police? Like what's really happening in this group? Who, whose pocket are they in? You know, this, this um, and, and even just, really common lack of clarity, even in a lot of small mutual aid groups. So these are just like a common problem that comes up that we want to cultivate something different. Another common problem is groups over promising and under delivering. So like, we say that we serve all people being released from prison in the county, but actually, we probably see about 20 people a year. And we have this huge waiting list and most people can't get help anywhere. Or we say that we you know, that that's like a very like that kind of over promising. It's like it really breaks trust in the community. Very common with nonprofits. Elitism, I think, is related to this. Like if the city council members call us, we'll call them back. But we don't call back community members who aren't, you know, quote unquote, important. And just general non responsiveness, like not being able or not being interested in responding to people who are reaching out, like a really big problem in a lot of groups. And the third sort of theme is scarcity, urgency, and competition. Like a sense of rushing, of overwork culture, of um, believing there's never gonna be enough, of feeling competitive with other groups that do the same things, or people in the group competitive with each other. Like you're getting more attention than I am for this, that kind of stuff. This is just like, these are all like very normal responses to the conditions we live under but they're problems we would like to solve by having 
strong group culture and structure. Okay, so what do we want to cultivate instead? Some of the things I think we want to cultivate are transparency. I think a lot of mutual aid groups are really good at this. Like, here's all the money, you know, we're, we're tweeting, here's all the money we raised in the last six months, and here's all the sleeping bags and water bottles and masks and um, phone chargers and, um, you know, diapers we bought with it. You know, this kind of like interest in transparency is so beautiful and so not corporate, not nonprofit. We want accountability to community, right? We want to stick to our values. We don't want to be easily bought off by a funder or attention from the city council or the mayor or governor. We want to be able to stick to what the community believes in and needs and values. We want wise action that's influenced by many people's wisdom. So we want to avoid that concentrating decision-making. We want to care about the most vulnerable first, so not get caught in, um, you know, trying to find who's the most deserving group of people in crisis. We want to have a ability to cultivate abundance and sharing, to have that solidarity with other groups. The only way we're going to win anything is if we have each other's backs across like issue silos and organizations like so much so that maybe I'm in a mutual aid group that's doing eviction defense, but we show up for the transit worker strike and we show up for the fight against the new jail and we show up for the defund the police work, right? Like we, we have to have build that kind of people power where we are deeply networked even if we're going deep with particular mutual aid projects and that's the bulk of our time. We wanna have clear plans so that we know what we're doing. We can communicate that to new members in our groups. We can um, know that it's okay to implement them because we all came up with like the broad strokes together. So now we can go into getting it done in all of our subcommittees or whatever. And we want our groups to have clear boundaries about what we do and what we don't do and why. We don't want to just say yes to everything and then under deliver. We want to make sure we made good choices about what our specific offering is that like no other group is doing this. Nobody else is providing this in Spanish in this neighborhood. So we're going to, and that's more important than this other thing we could get confused and lost doing that someone might want us to do, but that other groups are doing. So building horizontal groups is hard. Most of us have not been in horizontal structures. Like we live our lives in hierarchies, families, schools, jobs, churches, like someone else is deciding. Feedback only goes one way. We don't get a lot of chances to, to weigh in. Um, as I said before, we are more wise as a group than as individuals. We stick to our values more and we should all have a say in how the work we do happens. I think that even though it's scary that we're trying to ask ourselves to do something we haven't had a lot of experience with, we actually have some skills from our friendships. Maybe not everyone, but I think a lot of people I know, that's maybe the only place where they've practiced some horizontalism, where people have tried out being like, oh yeah, 
you know, do you want to hang out on Saturday? And I'm like, no, but I could do Monday. And then you're like, what about Monday afternoon? Like we're playing with proposal. We're interested in both people or all people's concerns. And we're coming up with something everyone can live with. That's what consensus decision-making is. Um, I think in friendships, sometimes people have practiced that because I think they are often more consensual relationships than work, family, church, or um, sexual and romantic partnerships. I'm going to do a whole workshop about consensus decision-making and about decision-making in this series, but I'll just say having horizontal groups means making decisions together instead of somebody on top telling us what to do. It produces better decisions because we actually listened to everybody's concerns and tried to address them. It produces better implementation because we were all part of making the decision, so we're going to all implement it. And it produces better relationships. It teaches us skills like how to be more cooperative, collaboration, how to be more collaborative, and how to have more group cohesion and connection. And maybe the most important and radical skill of all to me is actually wanting to hear other people disagree with us. Like, oh, I'm gonna bring this proposal and I hope people tell me how it could be better because that'll be better for our group and for the work we believe in instead of I'm gonna bring this proposal and I wanna ram it through because it's my idea. That's, that's a, the skill we get in like a hierarchical society that really causes us to hurt one another. Okay, so I want to talk about organizational culture a little bit. Um, hopefully this is a idea that's somewhat familiar that organizations have cultures, like the your mutual aid group has a culture. I'm using the word organization and group interchangeably, or you could say project, whatever you like. Um, to me, they all mean the same thing in this context of thinking about mutual aid groups. So one part of organizational culture is like the signals we give people when they first come in like is it friendly do people welcome us is it easy to get into this mutual aid group or is it really hard is there an orientation for new people are people talking in a bunch of acronyms and i have no idea what they're talking about um is there an information being given to me about the group history sufficiently that i understand why we're doing what we're doing um, part of organizational culture is just how it feels here. Does it feel rushed? Does it feel like people are make a lot of jokes? Does it feel um, warm? Um, you know, kind of what are those dominant feelings? Also, organizational norms like we're always late or we're always on time. We celebrate people's birthdays or we, you know, mark certain holidays together. We sing together. There's often a culture around feedback like. Direct feedback is something we try and do, or we're all really scared of conflict and we don't give feedback. Um, yeah, this is just about dominant feelings, warmth or coolness, urgency or spaciousness, scarcity or faith in abundance. Thing about organizational culture or group culture is that it tends to be created by people who started the org, but also people who come later affect it a lot. Um, but but sometimes it can be useful to think about like who started this and do they have certain personality traits and are those kind of in an ongoing way carrying the, the vibe here. 
Um, or did a strong personality trait come in at some point and now we all follow that? Like I was part of an organization where some of the original people were really thrifty. So the group was really good at like always meeting its kind of like budget and always coming in a little under, like it was just part of the organizational culture. And I've also been in groups where the original people were um, really messy about money. And so that was kind of the vibe in the group for a really long time. Um, organizational culture or group culture can change with intentional efforts. Like we can say, we'd like it to be a little friendlier here, or we would like it to be more punctual here. And just to be real, trauma, overwhelming community need, urgency, lack of resources, all influence the culture of many social justice groups and impact the people working in those groups. So like, our organizational culture is also a reflection of the conditions. Like, it's not about blaming us for it, but it's also about being like, can we have some intention around it? Um, oh, and I think that the next thing is the poll about organizational culture from um, Sophie. Oh, people have already been answering it. Great. What is one strength you experienced in an organizational culture you've been part of? Solidarity, community, caring, non-hierarchy, flexibility, co-creation, friendship, authenticity, big hearts, collaboration, joy, friendship, support, love, fun, kindness, respect, forgiveness, that's rad, listening, openness, creativity, compassion, consensus, transparency, patience, welcoming, Humor, oh, we need it. Skill sharing, vulnerability, enthusiasm, oh, that's so great. Grace, empathy, warmth, accountability, commitment, learning, Generosity. The interpreters are going to switch right now. I want to apologize that when I'm looking at my slides, I don't see that note. So I'm always going to miss those um, interpreter switches when I'm. Um, okay, yeah, I love you all putting this up. For me, it was transformative just to start thinking about like what were organizational cultures I was in that felt better <laughs> and to be like, how did that happen? Like, um, how did they, how did someone set that up? What was somebody's like cool personality trait that helped support that? And could I try to learn that? Um, I think that it can be easy for people to be like, well, I'm just unfriendly, or I 
just don't really like people or I'm just shy. But it's interesting to just see, like, is there any, obviously we should only do what we want to do, but if and what it's possible for us. But it, sometimes it can be fun to be like, could I expand a little bit in one direction or another with some traits in order to support the group I'm in to feel a way that I want it to feel? Um, how did someone do that? You know, like I learned to be somebody who helps people sing at the end of meetings or at the beginning. Seems scary. I hate singing, but like, could I get help with that? Or could I be someone who helps remember access needs as a part of the meeting? Um, or could I be someone who helps um, move us away from a culture of gossip to one in which people can get support, but without gossiping? Um, like, how do I want to contribute to building an organizational culture that I've either that I want or that I experienced somewhere and thought was cool? Like, where people appreciate each other, where people have fun at the meetings. I mean, God forbid. <laughs> okay, thank you all. That was really useful. Um, let's see. So I want to talk a little bit about capacity, obviously, or kind of a bit about capacity, because this is something that a lot of people brought up in the um, in the registration questions. Um, this is a picture I took in the Cascade Mountains on the right of wildflowers. Um, so I think with capacity, one thing we might feel sometimes is like excitement. And just like, sometimes we are like, this group that I'm in is amazing. We have new opportunities to do cool work. Someone's asking us to do something. And we might feel really wonderful feelings like excitement, purpose, vision, um, pressure to step up, like someone's got to do this and we want to do it. Oh, some of those are like, okay, these are a mixed bag. We also might feel overwhelmed, feel fear of failure. Let's see what's on my next slide because clearly something went awry. I was trying to imagine. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we also might feel, um, you know, overwhelmed when we, this is my dog, Benny. Isn't he like the cutest? Um, we also might feel a lot of pressure to perform. A lot of us might feel imposter syndrome or self-doubt, like, can I do this? Can we do this? Are we just a bunch of fakers? Is everyone going to find out that we're not good at this? Um, you know, it's the moment where we are talking about capacity in our group or when there's discussions about whether or not to take on new work can have this mix of like what we might consider like delightful feelings like excitement and inspiration, but also um, feelings like I'm already overwhelmed or fear. I just want to normalize that. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about group culture specifically around capacity. Like we have our generalized features of our group culture, like is it friendly? Do we sing? But we also have a specific group culture about capacity in every group. One element of this is how do we say yes, no, or maybe to each other and to outside partners. Like, do we avoid saying no? A lot of people in this culture do. Do we, do random people in our group say yes without asking everybody else? Do we forget to take time to make the decision together? Um, or are there some people in this group who kind of have an automatic no setting, which can be just something we live with inside, and other people have an automatic yes, and those people are like coming to conflict, you know? And, 
how do we get to a place where we can make the decision in a principled way that's based in like a sober assessment of our capacity instead of people's autopilots. There is a culture usually around how we communicate when something changes and we can't agree to do what we said we would do. Like, do we tell people we're not showing up or do we just not show up? Both individually, if I said I would do a task after the meeting or also like as a group, like we said we would table, but we're not there. You know, what's the culture of, of, of accountability when plans do need to change? Um, how do we communicate with each other when someone isn't doing what we think they agreed to? So if at the end of the meeting, Hope said that they would take something on and I noticed they never did it and it's not in the Google Doc or they didn't write the email to the group or they didn't deliver the supplies. Do I say, oh, hey, Hope, I thought you were doing this or do I just like think bad things about them or do I go and do it for them? Like each of those things there'll probably be cultural norms about in your group. Um, how do we create a culture where we value people for being and not doing? So like, how do we both get psyched to get the work done and also not have it be like, well, you know, Hope or Dean or whoever is the most important person in this group because they get the most volume done. That can be really ableist. It can be really dehumanizing. It's based in like capitalist and white supremacist norms about productivity. So how do we say that everyone here is really important for existing? And also like, we wanna get this work done together. Um, how do we create a culture where we do, do what we said we'd do, or if we can't do it, we make sure that people are informed, you know? So that it's not like, how do we not be flaky, even while valuing people not just for productivity? How do we celebrate and experience satisfaction? I, I think it's Adrian Marie Brown who I've, heard talk so beautifully about the dilemma of when we are unsatisfiable. Like, I feel like I've really struggled to let myself feel satisfaction about any of my work in our movements or at all, because of course there's always more to do. I could have done it better. Um, there's all the things on my to-do list I haven't done. There's all the terrible things that are happening in the world and all the people I know are suffering and are not getting support. So how can I feel any satisfaction or celebrate anything? And when we don't let ourselves ever feel satisfaction for our imperfect work and our unfinished work, we are likely to burn out and to resent each other and the work. So figuring out like, how do we create a group culture that lets some satisfaction happen together as a collective experience and maybe helps us all learn the ability to feel some satisfaction and celebration, even for unfinished and imperfect work. And how do we communicate to each other when we want more support in our work? Like, have we made a culture in which I can say, I said I would work on the spreadsheet, but I'm actually realizing I don't totally know how to work this computer program, or I don't understand where this information came from, or I actually think this is a two-person job. And I can say that in the group. Like, how do we create a culture where that's totally fine? So I want us to um, go back to a poll. And the first poll question um, to put your answers into, and then I'll read some of them out loud, is um, your group, like, how do you want your group to communicate about work and capacity? 
how people are on top of it. Direct, honestly, acknowledging the strength in the room and in the community, as well as sensing emerging innovation, N um, number of active participants, staying with our edges without being heroic. I, um, I want people to feel safe and secure in their ability to change their level of participation at any time. Sensing our edges and not going over, staying with tolerable discomfort and not trying to be stronger than we are. Firm and soft boundaries. To work to our edges and not going over, but also stretching. Being strong but not heroic means uh, making sacrifices but keeping beyond keeping ba in balance. Talk about it specifically. Allow space for folks to say they need a break without blame or shame. To be clear, my group does this already, yay. Direct and clear. I want my group to talk about capacity openly and transparently. We all have maxed ones. Can you scroll for me a little bit, Sophie? Thank you. As an evolving concept, but I simultaneously want people to follow through. <laughs> yeah. How can we bring more people into our group? I think I'm going to do some a workshop on that. How can we make, how can we share the decision making? How can we be more welcoming? Yeah. How's your heart? That's nice. Date concerns when they arise. Yes. Giving feedback sooner. We'll have a feedback workshop too. I want our group to be open about their limitations and be comfortable taking a step back when they're overwhelmed. Acknowledge it and be able to step back and address it and work on ways to reduce it from happening again. Candidly, actually knowing what it is, we don't have a sense of amount or need in the community, of the need in the community. I get exhausted doing more than I can do as an isolated, poor, aging, disabled, queer orphan, while young people with access to enormous privilege claim low capacity and it's pulling teeth to get any mutual aid. So resentment builds and it's unsustainable. I just really want to acknowledge this comment. There is such complex unevenness in the labor in our groups and more broadly in the community. And resentment is a very common and reasonable result that unfortunately is very poisonous to the resenter, I can say <laughs> for myself. So figuring out like how we can create cultures that change some of that unevenness to free up some of that resentment. I wish we had an onboarding process. Cool, let's make one, I love that. Um, as honestly as possible with compassion and frequently I want members to be honest about their individual capacity. In some groups, people take on a lot of stuff and then don't do it. In some groups, people are afraid to take things on, I've noticed, who could actually try taking some stuff on. So it's like a fascinating thing, like what's the culture of your group right now? Um, vulnerability and honesty. I want to be fearless. I want them to be fearless, to share and be vulnerable. But the regional culture is all about passivity and not rocking the boat. I live in the Pacific Northwest, trust me. Uh, this pervades even resistance spaces holding themselves accountable. Someone says talking about it more slowly. Cool. Um, reassurance in the moment. Solutions, not complaints. Yeah. If we're starting to be really bitter about everybody who's like not following through, it's like how to be more active. Like how can I, how can we create a group where people want to follow through and are skilled to follow through instead of just like hating on them? It's like, just doesn't get us very far. And probably there's some good reason people are doing it. Like we have to just like come from a place of of love and wanting to solve if possible. Um, I wish we had willing to have facilitation consensus and conflict resolution training. Yeah, we should do some stuff about facilitation in this workshop series. We may have to extend this workshop series a little bit. 
um, being mindful of ableist tendencies. I mean, how to talk about capacity um, without being ableist or how to address ableism that comes into capacity conversations is a really central here. So for a lot of groups, doing a disability justice training may even be helpful um, for helping the capacity conversations um, improve. I mean, some groups aren't even having capacity conversations, so that's another thing. Um, someone wants this conversation to be done collectively, direct using transformative justice, short and sweet, be direct, with compassion and honesty, openly and honestly. Great. Great. We will, oh, I'm just going to read a few more. Acknowledgement of intersectionality, understanding that internalized ableism can play a huge part with disabled participants. Thank you. Using NVC, so someone's raising um, what is called nonviolent communication, which is a method of giving and receiving feedback. We'll probably talk about that a bit in the feedbacks um, session. A lot of people find it really useful as like a formula for how to give and receive feedback. So if your group is struggling with that, just like look up what NVC is. It's relatively simple. I mean, you can get really deep in it, but it's um, it's a useful tool. Um, all right. Um, I love this. Okay, let's, let's go to the next poll, which is um, how do we not want our group to communicate about capacity. What tendencies do you want to see moving away? Shaming, mm, yes, nobody ever learned by shaming. Nobody ever healed by shaming. Trying to move away from being fearful. Stop valorizing overworking yourself. That's really hard. People will be in like a competition. Like I had an all nighter and I have saved 17,000 emails and not a good thing. Stop over promising. Stop doing it last minute. Stop being judgmental. Try not to have resentment. Stop avoiding the discussion. Not yelling. Um, stop having silence or a lack of response. Um, Trying not to have the conversation be centering irritation. Stop apologizing for our capacity. Um, oh, thanks. Someone's putting um, some resources about decolonizing nonviolent communication in the chat. Thanks for that. Um, really useful. Um, trying not to make assumptions. Trying to feel love. Stop essentializing yourself. Teach others how to do things you know how to do. Yeah, how do we pass on skills? How do we make sure that no one is indispensable so that everyone can take a break if they needed to or leave the work and the work could still go on? That's really our goal. Complaining for the sake of it, not actively looking for solutions. Yeah, that's something we all can get caught up in sometimes. People are not liking blame and shame. Um, trying to avoid judgment, silence, sweeping under the rug, a few people picking up all the slack and not talking about it openly. Yes, that is a very common thing that happens. And a lot of us are doing our family roles. We're like taking up slack because we cared for everyone in the family or because we feel like we don't deserve to not do that. I mean, there's just a lot going on with that stuff a lot of times, a lot of old family stuff. And of course, structures around our cultural positions, our positions in different oppressive hierarchies. No gossip, no self-demeaning talk, no shaming others. Yep. Telling something to everyone but, but the person it concerns. Yes, I mean, direct communication 
if there was direct communication, so much less conflict in our groups would happen. It is just a really big problem that we are um, likely to talk to everyone else about our concern besides the person. Ghosting. Yeah, I think a lot of groups are struggling with this based on what people said in their um, uh, registration questions. So I'm aware of that, that there's just a lot of ghosting. It makes sense because people are really overwhelmed in the society, but also can we skill people up to communicate more about capacity so that others don't experience them as ghosting? Because it's just a really rough trust violation sometimes in groups. Um, yeah, Hillary, I love. I would love to talk more about the family role stuff. That's a lot of what my current writing is about. Um, at some point, maybe we'll do that more too. Um, Great. I'm going to let, let's close this slide. There's so much here, but I think we're getting a sense of it. Part of the reason I wanted us to see each other's um, answers is because we are likely to be in our group trying to have this same conversation. Like I, I, I'm recommending that you all have a workshop in your group where you say, how do we currently talk about capacity? How would we like to? And then people can also have different interests. You know, like um, in the same way that people have different, like, I like to receive feedback this way and someone else likes to receive feedback that way. And then we can like have multiple ways we do it or we can do it differently with different projects or different people. Like ideally we really want to um, uh, like have this be a generative conversation in our groups. Like I'm trying to model in these workshops that you could do a similar conversation in your group. Um, Hope, can you bring up the slides again for me, please? Okay. I want to talk a little bit. The capacity piece um, also relates a lot to internalized cultural messages that I am concerned about that I think relate to just like how we work. We live in a society in which work is valorized and it's coerced. You must work or die in capitalism, right? It's this idea that, I mean, except for the few very rich people, um, and so we feel a lot of resentment towards work. We feel a lot of avoidance about work. We're forced to work when we um, really shouldn't be for our well-being. We're forced to do work that hurts our bodies and minds and spirits. Like it's dicey, sticky, messy, um, emotional and psychic territory. And so we all have a bunch of really toxic messages in our in ourselves that can um, make the capacity conversation very complex. So one of the questions that we need to think about is like, how do we value ourselves for being not doing? I will just say, this has been very hard for me. <laughs> like, I, and I think a lot of other people raised in alcoholic families, raised in chaos, raised in different kinds of abuse, just like, one of the messages we get is I'm going to do my way out of this or everything was my fault. And if I had just done something right, I could have controlled this. So we become do overdoers. We, we either take care of everybody or we bottom line everything. Sometimes we're very controlling and dominating with that. Sometimes we're more subterranean, but that fundamental belief that like my value comes from what I can do and my safety comes from what I can do and my belonging comes from it, can definitely take the joy out of much 
beautiful social movement work and it can also make us like act really weird and sideways towards others and it can make us have a hard time um accurately knowing our capacity or sharing that with others how do we find ways to feel acknowledged recognized and valued that isn't based on achievement and external approval so this is really deep for for us like can i know that i deserve to exist and feel my worth not just based on what i can get other people to think about me or say about me which doesn't mean i'm doing it in isolation from that we all get our sense of selves in various ways through collective experiences we are you know social animals it's not irrelevant but there's something different than getting all my well-being through what others think of me what comes up that drives us to overcommit why do some of us keep volunteering for more tasks in a meeting that we know we can't do or that we know we can't do and and be well or get the rest we need or whatever what does procrastination feel like what drives it in us why do i keep putting off the task that i said i would do and that i know needs doing and, and perhaps even like really believe in like what's happening inside me um, and what does overwork feel like you know am i numbing with overwork am i self-harming with overwork am i competing like what's going on in there like this list is just about becoming curious about things that might be on autopilot for us um i think i've said this publicly elsewhere but i have found the literature of the 12-step program workaholics anonymous to be useful there are a lot of limits to 12-step programs and it doesn't work for a lot of people totally fine um there's a lot of ideas in that program that i think are individualizing when really we could blame systems but nonetheless um i've found very pragmatic inquiries that have helped me unpack some of my harmful habits around work that include thing, ways that my work my imbalances around work have affected others and groups and myself so I want to have a, the poll that asks, what messages do I hear in my head when I'm deciding to overcommit? Did I not make this poll? I think I did, but maybe I didn't. Would you make it for us, Sophie? <laughs> Sorry. We can all watch the chat while Sophie's in. All right, and welcome back. Hello, this is Mia Byrne. Nice to see you too. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad that you were doing this today. Oh, well, um, there's a lot of things on my mind. You know, let's see. Uh, defeat the patriarchy. That's number one. Um, 
screw the uh medical system that's number two um let's see uh free money for all or abolish money altogether that'd be great um <laughs> what's going on with me i uh just came back from nashville tennessee where i recorded my next album um it's really great it's being mixed right now um by an artist who produced it named aaron lee tastian Yes, J-A-N, who's a wonderful Americana artist and uh, joined by a wonderful uh, crew of players. And it's all my original music and the first long playing record I've made in a while. And then I had also showcased at Americana Fest where um, my show got written up in Rolling Stone, which was amazing. And I um, I played mandolin and steel guitar in a Reba McIntyre record, and it just went to number eight on the charts. Oh, cool. there's a lot of things going on and it's a little overwhelming and strange and i'm i welcome it so much i'm very very blessed and grateful yes it's uh miaburn.com m-y-a-b-y-r-n-e uh dot com or just drop my name into the googs and you'll find me on the spots and the amazons and all the other terrible companies Thanks so much. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I would love that. Yeah, we can we can talk about stuff that's probably going to get me in trouble at some point later in my life. Right. If you're not if you're not making people angry, if you don't have enemies, then you're not doing a good job. <laughs> My pleasure. Listen to Utah Phillips. Oh yeah, Utah Phillips. Do you have a particular song you'd like to hear by Utah Phillips? Uh, no. interpreters are interpreting from what I'm saying. Um, And I will read selections from the polls. I won't read everything from the polls. 